everyone, and welcome back to It's a Fan's World. I am one of your hosts. I am Maria, but I am also joined today by my other co-host, Kelly. How are you, Kelly? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Can't complain. Yes, we're glad to be back here at It's a Fan's World. It's just the two of us today. Derek and Dave are not with us, and we wish them well in whatever they're doing. They will mostly only show up for uh, Star Wars and Marvel stuff. They're not really Disney guys, but that's okay. We understand. If they ever want to come for a Disney episode, they're more than welcome to. Although Derek has thrown his hat in the ring if we, really not if, when we ever get to a particular Disney animated film. He's already told me that he wants a (laughs) seat on that episode, so... We're just gonna find a Disney movie for Dave. Mm. But we'll yes, one. find one. He's welcome. Any of them are welcome anytime. But for today, you are stuck with just Kelly and I. <laughs> so, uh, moving right along. Today is uh, it is December. So today we are talking about Disney's 2009 animated version of A Christmas Carol, and I am excited dive into this one but excited for different reasons because it's weird <laughs> go for it well no i was gonna say because it's weird but we will get we'll get into why it's we think it's weird okay all right so uh there's no real housekeeping so moving right along and jumping into the film as always one of the first things we like to do on this episode is we like to Talk about memories and our first encounters with the material, or even if you just like it. So, Kelly, I'll start with you. Do you like this movie? And what are your first memories associated with this movie? I do like this movie, and it's been many years since I've watched it. Um, rewatching again, excuse me, rewatching it again. I found I like it more than the first time. Um, if I'm remember, if I'm remembering correctly, the first time I saw it was in middle school on a field trip, and I admit, at first, I was just super excited that I got to skip school, <laughs> um, and it was allowed, and you know, they set you all up. It was also one of the few times I've been in an IMAX theater. I think it was even discounted. And then as I sat down and actually got to watching it, it was it was an enjoyable experience. But again, watching it again as an adult, you just get a very different feel than when you were younger, I feel. I agree with that. As you get older, you tend to look at material differently because different things stick out at you. And that's one of my favorite things, revisiting material that I haven't seen since I was a child. You notice the same things, but there's always something new or something has more significance because you're more mature now to see it. Exactly. It's just like a greater depth. Yes, exactly. So that's adorable that you saw it in IMAX. That's pretty cool. I remember. So when this movie came out, I was 2009. I was 19. So I was actually working my, uh, this was my first job with the Disney company. While I did spend majority of my time with the company working in the parks, for the Christmas season of 2019, I was seasonal help at the Disney store in our local mall. So 
This was my first time with the company and it was super excited. It was a great experience. But one thing, the reason I bring that up is because uh, in the store that I worked in, the store had this giant like jumbo screen at the back of the store that would constantly play different types of Disney content. And one of the things that kept cycling through the screen was a bunch of interviews and promotions for this movie. And right after that would be promotions and previews of Princess and the Frog. And those were the two big movies that were happening that year. And they came out, if they didn't, I'm not, I don't remember off the top of my head when Princess and the Frog came out, but they came out very close together. And Princess and the Frog got my ticket at the box office that winter. And I don't regret it because that movie to me is absolutely fantastic. This movie, I remember people coming into the Disney store and a lot of parents had a lot of different comments about this movie and none of them were positive. And I remember one night the store was really dead. It was late at night and I was talking to a coworker at the store and she's like, yeah, she's like, um, my boyfriend and I went to go see it. It's, it is what it is. Wait till it comes out on video. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that. I don't think that affected me going into it because I really liked it the first time I saw it, but I'm on, I'm on an opposite track from you watching it. Fun fact that we actually watched it together last night. We did a Disney plus watch party and it was super fun, but watching it last night, I don't, I don't like it as much as I used to. I still think it's one of the versions of a Christmas Carol. I like better but i definitely like it less than when i saw it the first time maybe it's because as you said earlier like as you grow and you mature and everything you just you know more now so maybe maybe that's it maybe no no could just be me (laughs) but yes so those are my memories associated with this film yours were way better (laughs) no all right, so the movie is rated PG. It's one of the few Disney animated movies yes. that are rated PG because Disney, I know, especially for the animated content, they try to keep it G rating. I believe when I looked it up, and don't quote me on this, it's one of the five animated films from Disney that are PG. I think one of them was the, dinos- um, the movie Dinosaur, um, mm-hmm. the movie Bolt, and something else, I think. I do know that Bolt and Dinosaur have PG ratings, so that's that is yeah. There's there's not many at all. There have only been a few handful. We had that conversation last night too. There's kind of that stigma surrounding Disney that like you know everything has to be family friendly, and um, I was wondering if maybe that was why a lot of people didn't you know have a good experience with the film because they didn't expect it to be or go as dark as it did. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the, that that was what people were saying in the store is when they would come in and they would see the commercial or the previews, the content, uh, they would strike up uh, conversations with cast members in the store and they would say, it's really dark. Um, it, it had a lot of jump scares. My child didn't like it. And I remember also Disney kind of putting it out there saying like, hey, this this film is a little darker. 
this film is a little more adult. And I think they tried to do it subtly through interviews with directors and filmmakers and cast because there really wasn't like, I think now they do it more directly where like, there's that voiceover where they're like some scenes in this movie, maybe, you know, it's more direct where it's like, Oh, if you hear that voiceover, you know that it's not so family friendly, but they tried to be subtle about how, um, kind of dark this movie is for a Disney movie. But I think that to them, that was a selling point, if I remember correctly, because I think they wanted to, I, I know we will get to it. I know the director was Robert Zemeckis and yes. this was a, this was a big passion project for him. So I think he wanted to make it a little more adult. And if anything, I think that's one of the things that works in the film is because that's the other thing too. Disney also already has a real cutesy um, version of A Christmas Carol, which was something else we were considering for this podcast is the Mickey Mouse one with Scrooge McDuck. If you've ever seen that cartoon short, that is a very simplified cutesy a nutshell version of a Christmas Carol, whereas this one is more of a drawn out full length story. That was the other thing too. So like when Kelly and I went to give topics for what we wanted to record this month, there was so much content that we were considering for the month of December. We, at one point we kind of said to each other, we said, okay, you know, we'll, We'll go away and we'll come back in a couple of days and we'll touch base and we'll see what we both bring to the table. And that's how this version of the Christmas Carol got picked because this was one of the few pieces of content that we both came back with that we both had. And we were like, all right, if we both pick this, then maybe we'll do this. So here we are. The force was strong that day. <laughs> the force was always strong with us. <laughs> All right, so little recap. Like we said, it was a PG rating. It came out November 6, 2009. It had a budget of $200 million, and its box office total worldwide was $325 million. So it, it did all right. It did well. Yes. Movie runtime is one hour and 37 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, as we said, the director is Robert Zemeckis, who, I mean, he's known for... Forrest Gump, Castaway, Back to the Future, uh, Polar Express. And that, if you bring up the Polar Express, I think this was another thing we were talking about last night. This idea for Christmas Carol came after he made the Polar Express because of the way the animation looks. It's, it's almost perfect for something like this. And I think those were his thoughts too. Well, absolutely. And there's, we'll get to like the Easter eggs later on, but there's even a scene in the Polar Express um, where you see the Mary, excuse me, where you see the marionette puppets and there's one of Ebenezer Scrooge and they based his look in this movie kind of off of that one. So it was really interesting. Hmm. I, I, I remember that tidbit because I remember reading that fact, but now that you say it, I'm, I'm envisioning the marionette. Yeah, yes. yep. I'm that visiting used, the puppets. That used to that scene used to creep me out because I think I was eight when that movie came out, and I was fortunate enough to see it in IMAX, and it was just oh, that scene, <laughs> that scene got me. Uh, yeah, that was that was a creepy scene. All right, um, the music was by Alan Silvestri, which he also did the movie on 
Polar Express. He's done Lilo and Stitch. He's done a couple of the Avengers movies. Uh, I believe he's done Night at the Museum. So, I mean, a seasoned veteran when it comes to movie scores. Absolutely. Uh, production design was by, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, Doug Chiang. I apologize if I butchered his name. Uh, he's done a lot of other production art. Didn't he do something with The Mandalorian? He did um, the entire season one of The Mandalorian. He's done. He did so many things that I couldn't even list all of them properly in my research because it just it would take up like so many different pages. He did um, season one of The Mandalorian acting as um, production designer. He's worked in the art production and visual effects departments all across the board. Jumanji, Forrest Gump, Rogue One. He's And what's even more interesting is all these people, they've worked together before in many projects and they just kind of like all meshed together to create this movie. And it just, it worked so well. You find when you have projects like that where all of these different types of talents who know each other well when they come together, that those are the best projects that end up being created when people already know who can bring what to the table and they capitalize on that. Yes. So I, yeah. So, all right, we're going to run down our cast list. So it's not a big cast because a lot of people played a lot of the same parts. So I'll start us off with Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey played uh, the main character of Ebenezer Scrooge at all ages. He also played the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. So Carrey had a lot to do in this movie. He, did, he was absolutely extraordinary. Like He's another one, like you, not just those who created it, but it helped a lot that the actors were so passionate about it. And like, he's such a versatile actor too. I believe in a few of the interviews, it was um, Colin Firth commented on it. It's like, he's just, it, it's just amazing what he can do. He's a chameleon. He's one of those chameleon yeah. actors where whenever he does something, he puts himself into it heart and soul and mm -hmm. he, he gets physical with it. You can see it in his facial expressions. Like if you've ever seen the Grinch, um, the version where he's the Grinch, he's flinging himself all over the screen and his, he does gestures with his body and his face is matching his voice. And he's a very physical actor. And I think that's what helps, especially in something like this, because when you're making an animated movie. The animators will often film the voice actor doing the lines, and they usually use a lot of the facial expressions or body expressions mm -hmm. to animate the character. And I think that you can see, when you watch this movie, you can see so much of Jim Carrey come through. Well, the entire thing was done in mocap, I believe, too, because it was like this revolutionary technology at the time. I mean, I believe, don't quote me on this, I believe in even Polar Express, they started it with that. But mm -hmm. um, with um, A Christmas Carol, like they full on went into it. I believe it was like a 360 view. So it, you're completely right. They went full on and they captured their body language, every twitch, every freckle. I think at one point you even said, look, you can see the hair on the tip of his nose. Like it was just so detailed yeah it's the not to jump ahead but it's the scene where he's in the cratchit house and yes. he's, he's over the staircase you can see like the nose hairs on the tip of his nose and it's just it's that good Alrighty, now there it's not a big cast but there are quite a few others however we're just kind of focusing yeah, excuse me focusing on 
um, you know, the more well-known names or those who just show up the most. So in addition to Jim Carrey, we also have Gary Oldman, who is playing as Bob Cratchit, Marley, and Tiny Tim. And I'd just like to point out that I had no idea this was Gary Oldman back in the day. And it just, it still blows my mind. And ever since I discovered it, when I watched the movie, that's all I can think about is, <laughs> that's all I can see. He's another great actor. I mean, whether, <laughs> whether you know, Batman and Harry Potter aside. Yeah, he he's he's got quite a list of his own movies and accomplishments, and he's another one where, no matter what he's doing or where he is, I mean, if you want to take Bob Cratchit out of it and you just want to compare Sirius Black to Detective Gordon, those characters are so different, and they're he does them both so well that Gary Oldman disappears and whoever he's playing comes through. I couldn't have said it better myself. That, that's exactly it. Thank you. All right. Uh, yes. So going on to, we have Bob Haskins as Fezziwig and Old Joe. We have Robin Wright, Jenny from Forrest Gump. You may know her. Um, playing as Fan, Scrooge's sister, and Belle, Scrooge's girlfriend. Um, next up, we have Colin Firth as Fred, Scrooge's nephew. In addition to that, we have Carrie Elwes as Dick, Dick Wilkins, um, as well as the portly gentleman number one, the mad fiddler, the guest number two, and the businessman one and um, number one. I think I believe he is one of the gentlemen who is trying to collect donations from Scroo Scrooge towards the beginning of the film. If that helps you with picturing him. All right, so now we're going to get into uh, plot and summary breakdown of the film, and Kelly is going to take us through that as well. Okie dokie, guys. So the movie follows the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. He is an old, bitter man with a closed-off heart. You know, you could even think a frozen heart, like Frozen, um, who on Christmas Eve is ultimately visited by four spirits, and they just end up changing the course of his life. The first spirit being a former colleague, Jacob Marley, and the, uh, the letter three being the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. So through, his ex through this like, whole experience, um, the viewers learn of how Scrooge came to be, who he is, and it also acts as an eye-opener for Scrooge on how unacceptable and cruel his behavior towards his fellow man is. And if he doesn't change or grow, then he'll suffer the same fate as Jacob. He'll which was dying and being forced to walk the earth for eternity, carrying with him and being chained down by the weight of his sins, basically. And I guess we could just kind of go into, it would be important to mention too, the first scene, which begins with the funeral of Jacob, Jacob and 1836 on Christmas Eve. It kind of sets the film up perfectly, showing Scrooge's personality, where you know he is hesitant to pay the undertaker for the funeral, and he even takes it one step further after he pays to take the coins that were placed over Jacob's eyes, saying, Tuppence is Tuppence. And that's just kind of a very shocking image. Like this man just passed away, it's his funeral, and you're taking stuff off his dead body. Dead body. And I don't want to go into it too much, but later in the film, it's interesting because as he's with the ghost of Christmas yet to come, and it shows his maid and her associate. Um, and they have Scrooge's clothes and they took it off his dead body. So it was just really irony. 
thing to do because one of the things that this movie gets praised for is that it is very close to the book or it's one of it's one of the few renditions that tries to stick as close to the book as it can because uh that's another thing there have been so many different versions of this story that every one of them brings something different to the table some of them are funny like i know um there's like the version scrooged there's the muppet christmas carol i saw i saw something like this on a tv show once where it was a an episode of a spider-man cartoon so there's so many different things have attempted to do their own version of a Christmas Carol, but then you also have really serious versions too. Yes. So this version starts off because that's the first that's the first line in the book. It does open with a storybook opening, and that is also the first because I have I have the book and I actually checked just to make sure. I'm pretty sure that the scene that it starts out with in the movie is the first scene in the book. I think it's even the first sentence. It's something like Jacob Marley was dead. Yeah. Yep. So after we get that, that very uh, eye-opening scene of his character and who he is, he starts walking through London and nobody wants to come in contact with him. I mean, even, even the dog is afraid of him. And what does it say when a dog doesn't like someone? Oh, well, you know, it's excellent that you, it's just spot on that you said that because one of the things that I found was that is a direct nod to the book because um, I believe Dickens comments that even blind dogs avoided him. So that was one of the <laughs> nods to the novel that they put in that the dog okay. creeped out. There, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, one of the things that I really think is one of my favorite things of this movie, and they do it more than once, is mm -hmm. you get these gorgeous sweeping views of Victorian yeah. London where – the technology, I can only imagine the special effects that you needed to do that. But every once in a while, and, and especially in the beginning it happens, they'll, they'll pan out and they'll do these aerial sweeps of Victorian London. And those scenes are just absolutely gorgeous. I think that's some of the prettiest animation I've seen. Might be I might be biased because I love Victorian London, even though sometimes I wonder how much there is to love in that. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that uh, it's absolutely beautiful. No, I completely agree. It's just the way they, they just did it so well. Like all, like color where there needs to be color, shadow where there needs to be shadow, detail where there needs to be detail. They just checked all the boxes. Moving on, so. Scrooge's character is set up really well. We see him that even on the streets, nobody wants to interact with him because they're scared of him. When he does have interactions with people, they're very generally unpleasant. Uh, we see him go into his accounting house. And then I like how the counting, the camera doesn't move from the counting house sign. And yeah. you just see it like decay over the course of, I believe it's seven years. Yes, because I, yeah. I think it was he was buried in 1836, and the movie takes place in 1843. Okay. Okay, there you go. Um, yes, it does take place in 1843. I do know that. Okay. <laughs> um, I like how the 
But getting back, I like how it, it just kind of like you can see the, the sign decay and like the M becomes crooked in Marley. Okay. I was going to say, now we see him with his business partner. He has, I, is Jacob Marley a full business partner no, or does he, he work for him? He works for him. Okay. So he has an associate, Jacob Marley, who is a doll of a man. And one of the other first characters we meet is Fred. And Fred comes in and asks his uncle to Christmas to come for Christmas. And Scrooge is not having any of it. He's indignant. He's very grumpy and, you know, passive towards Fred. So they close down for the night after Fred leaves. Uh, Cratchit goes his way. Scrooge goes his way. They both go home. And this is something that you had brought up last night, Kelly, that I really liked. Uh, when scrooge walks away you can see the difference in the two personalities scrooge is kind of skulking and mumbling to himself and you know he's miserable he's hunched over and uh bob cratchit as he's walking away he waits for scrooge to be out of sight and he starts like running with excitement once he once scrooge turns the corner and he's like laughing and giggling and he sees some kids playing and they're sliding down the hill. He joins them and he's, you know, he's excited because it's Christmas Eve and for Scrooge, it's just another day. If anything, it's more of an annoyance than another day. Oh, exactly. I think for Scrooge, it's not just, it's, it's on one hand, it's the fact that he has to close his accounting house. So he feels like he's losing money, losing business. On the other hand, I think it just is a very painful for him. Whether or not he wants to admit it, and we'll find we'll find out why Christmas is so painful for him. But yeah, mm. and something else we forgot to mention too was um, before, right after Fred leaves, there are two men who come seeking charity donations for the workhouse mm. and for the poor, and Scrooge is extremely rude to them. He's very indignant and he turns them away. And I don't know if anybody has ever done research about Victorian workhouses, but the historian in me has done a tiny bit of research into the workhouses of the Victorian time period. And oh my, they were absolutely terrible. They were appalling. They're appalling by human standards in the 21st century. They were appalling by human standards in the 19th century. The only difference is a lot of people turned a blind eye. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, not only is Scrooge, um, Scrooge is being rude. He doesn't even care about the poor. You know, that's cause enough for these two men to look at uh, themselves when they hear Scrooge's words. But if you understand the situation of the workhouses, especially when I believe in the movie, one of the characters says many would rather die than go there. That was very true. A lot of people, if they knew, you know, they were kind of condemned to the workhouses. A lot of people I found in my academic research would have rather died than go there because they were just that bad. You made another point last night, and I don't mean to skip ahead too far, but it is relevant. Um, at the scene when he's with the ghost of Christmas present and he, the ghost is just about to perish, you know, he moves aside his robe and you see the two children. I believe one was ignorance and one was want, I believe. And um, yes. one transformed to a criminal and one transformed to 
you know, they don't confirm it, but it's almost like a woman of the night. And you had mentioned about uh, if she was, if for prostitutes back then, if they were picked up, they most likely would have been put in a mental hospital. I think you said something like that. Uh, yeah, especially um, in the 1850s and especially in the 1860s. Um, so might as well, we might as well talk about it. Uh, for my master's class this year, my uh, this semester, I am actually doing a paper on Victorian England and um, the urban poor. So there was a lot of subliminal messaging that my brain was doing with this movie and my research topic. But um, yeah, that is one of the things I found that at one point there was a campaign in the Victorian era where if a woman was picked up for being a woman of the night and she couldn't prove her innocence, she would be put in a health hospital to uh, be cured or be made pure again. So when she was put in a straitjacket, I kind of thought that was interesting because, I mean, whether or not straitjackets actually happened, they're hinting at the fact that these women were put in hospitals. Mm. So, and then uh, criminality. Man, when he forms into, if you were basically in Victorian England, there were not a lot of options for you if you were poor. And if you were part of that urban poor and you were a woman, it was even less. And prostitution was uh, an outlet for you that they saw, they, they were aware of the repercussions, but they also saw a lot of benefits and criminals were the same way. A lot of times people were victims of circumstance and that is, I think for me, it just draws that line that Scrooge says, you know, are there no workhouses? Are there no, you know, he lists a bunch of institutions for the poor, but these institutions that he lists like mental hospitals and the workhouses, they were very demeaning and it wasn't, it, it's, it's not as clear cut and rosy as it sounds. Exactly. And I think at, even at one point um, after Scrooge sees um, Cratchit's, yeah, Mr. Cratchit's house situation in his family and how Tiny Tim is ill, he um, even comments, makes a comment and the ghost of Christmas present looks at him and morphs his face and repeats the same quote right back at him. And you can see Scrooge taken aback as he realizes the seriousness and weight of what he said. Yeah, that's exactly the scene I was thinking of when I said, you know, when he realizes the act, the when he realizes the severity of his words, you hit the nail right on the head. But yes, I don't want to talk too much about history because uh, I don't know if anybody out there is listening with children around and now you have to explain to your child what a prostitute is. I apologize. <laughs> um, that is a conversation for you and your family. Movie is PG. <laughs> Movie is PG. Well, we took it to a different <laughs> level. Moving on. So they go, they go their separate ways. Um, and now we start to really get into it. Uh, Scrooge goes home, and when he arrives home, his door knocker turns into the face of his former best friend and former partner, Jacob Marley. And that this is is this the first this is the first jump scare of the film and oh, even yeah. though i knew it was coming it still got me 
you saw me we both um maria maria had the idea and it was brilliant she had skype open while we were in the watch party so it's like we both all our reactions were real time and we both jumped at that we're both like oh this is coming and we're like okay ready and then it didn't help it's it's that good of a jump scare you know it's coming and you still jump um but yeah so it's kind of the first forewarning that you know he's about to have an interesting night door knocker disappears as quickly as it shows up and Scrooge, you know, goes about his way. He gets settled in. And the next time we see him, he's in his bedroom and the bells. So there's a scene with bells. And again, if, if you know, you know, uh, in Victorian culture, in especially homes of the elite and wealthy where there were servants, um, in servants' quarters. If you've ever seen Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey does this with the board with the bells. That's how people would be summoned, especially if, if you were summoning your house workers or servants or whatever you wanted to call them. Uh, there was usually some kind of rope you could pull in the room and it would ring the bell down the stairs. And I don't understand why the bells are in Scrooge's room because... That is a perfect, I was just going to add a side note to that. Um, so I used IMDb for this specific reference. Um, they actually comment on it. So you uh -huh. know how, um, so they would not have been placed there in real mm -hmm. life typically. So the author of the novel kind of explained that most of Scrooge's house became office space with the exception of some of the bedrooms. And there was only right. a single bell like in the novel in Scrooge's room. And a direct quote from IMDb um, they explained, Dickens states that there was but one single disused bell in Scrooge's chambers, which communicated for a forgotten purpose with another chamber higher in the building. Dickens notes other bells in the house also began to ring. Disney chose to put all the bells in the room with Scrooge, which is inaccurate according to the Dickens work and contrary to the way servants' bells were normally placed. So you hit the nail on the head without even, like, Too much history. Too much history. Uh, yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's, um, so again, bells in Victorian period, especially within houses would signify communication and it's kind of foretelling that that's what Marley uses to kind of communicate his rival because, and I think it's kind of interpreted that only Scrooge can hear the bells because after when the camera zooms out and everything's quiet, he's like looking around like, did anybody else hear that? I think it's the bells and the clock ticking that kind of, Which, yeah. <laughs> well, I was, and go ahead. I was going to say, the only thing I was going to say was that's the other thing that kind of is throughout the whole movie is last night I noticed there were a lot of clocks there. And there always seems to be a reference to ticking time specifically somewhere. No, I don't know. If, I don't know I if that's from the book. I think it is mentioned, but don't quote me on that. Because I kind of, okay. in my notes, I've tried to focus more on the movie. Okay, but I got you. It would not, I don't think it would be incorrect to say that. Okay, leave it. So Marley shows up, and Jacob Marley has a warning for Ebenezer Scrooge that he needs to change his ways because... Marley is weighed down by all these chains, and it looks like the chains are secured to weights, could you say? I believe so. 
reminiscent of like the ball and chain kind of thing. Yeah, so he's anchored down by many chains that are attached to weights, and he tells Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, if you think this is bad, and he uses a reference, he uses the night he died as a reference, because I believe he says something like, if you think your, if you think this is long, yours were this long seven years ago, the night you buried me, or something like that, so it's, it, it leaves you wondering just how much Scrooge would be weighed down if he died right then and there. Mm. And he uh, he tells Scrooge, you know, you're going to be visited by three spirits. You need to listen to what they have to say. Expect one. Uh, uh, the heat. Basically, they're going to be drawn out for three nights. But that's not how it ends up happening. But he tells Scrooge, you know, you're going to be visited by three spirits in three nights. And figure it out because you're you're headed for a worser fate than mine. And Marley himself in this version, I can see if you had a little kid with you, I can see where the creepiness factor would come in, especially with the jaw. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That was one of the moments that, you know, that got me to that along with the door knocker. It's just a very disturbing concept. And kind of, you know what, the older you get, the worse it gets in mm. terms of it's just really disturbing to think about. But yeah, I could definitely see <laughs> some little ones getting really creeped out over really? that. So the next, so, and then another scene that I found kind of disturbing, it happens right after this, is when um, he goes to the window and Scrooge is dragged to the window and he can see all the spirits who are in basically turmoil that are weighed mm. down by chains. And the way I understood it as these are all the people who, you know, probably should have been better people in life. Because when you see the man over the woman with the baby and he's like, I wish I could help you. Yeah, that, that, that was upsetting. <laughs> it, it's a disturbing scene, whether it's not meant to be disturbing. I find it creepy and disturbing. Agreed. So the next ghost. So wait, no, not the next ghost. So the next scene that happens moving forward is Scrooge goes to sleep and he is woken up by a ghost that is an immensely bright light. And it almost kind of looks like a candle, wouldn't you think? Oh, absolutely. I think even one scene when it transitions towards the end before he switches to the next ghost, he ends up the candle on the table when he's talking to um, Belle. Like the, the oh. spirit goes, like the way the camera pans, it's like he ends up like kind of turning into the candle on the ah. okay. house. Okay. So the first ghost that visits is the ghost of Christmas past. Yes. And he takes Scrooge on uh, a journey to his past so that we get to examine just how Scrooge became the Scrooge that he is. No pun intended. Or maybe it was intended. So he takes his hand and you see them end up at a boarding school. And Scrooge, for the first time in the film, you kind of see, like, I think as the, the, date, the movie goes on, you see his expressions change from that mean grimace to an actually human-like expressions. And you see him smile a bit. And even the ghost comments, is that a tear I see upon your cheek? And it's like he's just filled with such emotion. And he sees these boys go by and it's Christmas Eve again. 
and yet we see that Scrooge has been left behind, forgotten. And I believe looking into it, it's not really explained in the film itself, but in the novel, I believe um, Scrooge's family life is not easy. Um, his father was not kind to him and he sent off to a boarding school. So really the only um, person he is closest to in this situation is his sister Fan, Fan who, you, who we see as he transitions from a young boy sitting there alone on Christmas Eve to a young man. And uh, you can just see the love he has for his sister when she comes in and she's so excited because she's like, oh, you can come home now. And that that hits right in the feels because it's like this this was a human being. He no. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it does hit you in the feels and it I think it helps you understand why he resents Fred a little bit. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure that Fan died during childbirth. Oh yeah, I the ghost of Christmas past even comments as that scene fades away, he's like, but she died a woman. But I okay. think she had one child. Um, she had children, and you see Scrooge. His expression kind of gets a little bit closed off, and he's like, "She just had one." Yeah, yeah. So, and I think I think that has a lot to do with his resentment towards Fred. Absolutely. So, yes. So uh, then you know we're whisked away back to what I presume is London. And we are at Fezziwigs, and I always enjoy Fezziwigs, no matter what <laughs> uh, version of this movie I am watching. I feel like everybody always has a lot of fun with the Fezziwig scene, and Bob Hoskins did a great job as Fezziwig. You can, and again, I I can see what you meant when you said that they uh, did like three sixty views of the actors because. Even even when Jim Carrey portrays a younger Scrooge, it looks like Jim Carrey when he was younger. They blended the what they wanted Scrooge to look like with Carrey so well. And even again, I can see so much of Bob Hoskins in Fezziwig's design. Yes. So, uh, like I said, I always think this is one of my favorite scenes in any Christmas Carol movie. Uh he goes back to his youth and he sees where he was an apprentice at Fezziwigs. And every Christmas Eve, Fezziwig closes down the company and they have a massive Christmas party with everybody. And this is where we see Scrooge enjoying himself and being a young man. But we also see that he has an eye for a lovely young lady named Belle. This whole sequence made me so emotional and it does, it's like, it's not even a long sequence, but you know, you see them and it says like time stops and everything else fades away. It's very, very romantic, very heartfelt. And you know, they see each other and they just start to dance and it's just, as it transitions, that fades away and you see them older and you see Scrooge at his accountant, uh, his accounting desk and Bella Cross and she went from wearing this beautiful blue gown with her hair draped down her back to wearing these very, um, I believe they're funeral clothes. They were, they were black. Um, she had the hat. Mm. She had her hair pinned up. You could tell they were older. And throughout, through the conversation, you find um, she has no dowry. She's left penniless because I believe her parents passed away. And she's, she says, I release you. And he's like, how can you release me? And she's like, I, like would you... If you had met me 
um, as I am now with nothing, would you still take me as you are now? And it just kind of, it was it was very emotional. And then she just he lets her walk away. So it's just another moment in Scrooge's life where, as you said, like you see why he became the way he did. And that you, that scene kind of breaks him because that's when he gets like really angry with the spirit and he tries to, you know, put the spirit out. He's like, haunt me no more. That I think that is something, I mean, it, it kind of goes without saying, but I think that is something that he really regrets and that kind of triggers him into moving the spirit on. Mm. So, and then another, another, so that's pretty much the end of Scrooge's time with the ghost of Christmas past. But right before he goes, uh, another creepy thing, the face of the ghost starts to reflect all of the people whom were in Scrooge's past. And it's almost kind of like they're flashing before him. And I just found that really creepy. Oh yeah, they do that again, which we'll get to later on. But yeah, that it take it takes you by surprise every time, and it's always kind of it just gives you the creepies. I don't know if it's the animation because this animation it's it's a very specific type of animation. I don't know if it's that, if it's the imagery, if it's the messaging in the imagery because we're we're old enough to understand it. But yeah, I don't know. I just I find that to be one of the creepier moments. Agreed. So moving on, uh, you know, Scrooge wakes up, he's back in his house, he's back in his room, but over in the next room, he can hear laughter, and he We've walks about this. <laughs> laugh. It's, it's almost reminiscent of a Santa Claus laugh. And then it becomes ominous. <laughs> yes, it does become ominous. Um, Scrooge walks into a room in his house, and the room is glittering gold with holly and ivory everywhere. And there are clocks. I did see another another like subtle thing. I I caught that this time is that the room is filled with clocks, and there's this giant um, mound of food and gifts in the middle of the room. And on top of the giant mound is the ghost of Christmas present. Yes, and I also think that it's just setting it, it's, what's the word? It's foreshadowing it because not only is it talking about how the ghost of Christmas present doesn't have much time on earth, you know, mm. not to get into it, but like if everything stays as it is and does not change, the same could be said for Ebenezer and Tim. Mm, yes. Yeah, a lot of that's that's one of I feel like that's one of the hallmarks of Dickens is that there's like always a lot of foreshadowing or a lot of uh like underscoring. Yes. Uh yes. So after they exchange some dialogue and you know the ghost of Christmas present uh tells Scrooge that his time on earth is limited. He's a really jolly guy. He's very happy. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. He's he's everything Scrooge isn't. And that's I think that's also something worth noting. So he tells Scrooge, take my robe, and they go off and he brings them. We get another great aerial sweep of Victorian London, but then we eventually settle on Bob Cratchit's house and we get to meet the Cratchit family. And they're such a, a humble little great family that they, they make me smile as well. 
Oh, they're heartwarming. And it's just like, the movie does very well with having these creepy, disturbing moments and then having like these moments of levity and just happiness and joy. And you can tell like, even though straight off the bat, you can tell this family is not doing well financially, but they don't let it get them down. And they're just, they're, you can tell they're good people. Yes. And actually, fun fact, did you know that there's a picture of Dickens in um, Ratchet's house? Oh, nice. Yeah, there is. I noticed that. I thought that was really cool. It's it's in the corner. I think it's by the fireplace. And you, you got to look, but you do notice it. See, I love that throughout the film. They have all these little nods. It makes it. I love when films do that. But yes, so like you said, we get to meet the family and the Cratchits have a large family. They're happy, humble people. Uh, we do get to meet Tiny Tim. And you do see that Tiny Tim is sick but that he's got a lot of spunk and he's a really happy kid. And Ebenezer is drawn to him very quickly. And he asks, you know, the ghost of Christmas present, you know, what, uh, what's his deal? Is he going to make it? And the ghost of Christmas present is very frank. He's like, no, you know, if, if, if events remain unchanged, he will not make it. And that breaks Scrooge's heart. Rewatching this, I have to say, all, almost all of the scenes with the family, I teared up. Like it just, it was, it was so much harder. And especially the way he said it, he's like, I, I believe the words were, I, I see a chair that's empty and it came mm. perfectly preserved. And I, I, I almost lost it. I held firm, <laughs> but I almost lost it. You saw me. I did, but that's that's what I love about you. Um, <laughs> that you're so pure. Uh, yes. Yes, I agree. And that, that disturbs me. That always was something that I felt really bad for. And I've seen many variations of this day in movie. I usually watch a version of this once a year. I used to lose it more as a teenager. Maybe I've become Scrooged, but I don't cry anymore. <laughs> I think it's because I know he's going to be all right in the end. I am one of those people, too, where if I know he's going to be okay in the end, I won't cry. That always helps. That always does help. Uh, and then we get to Fred's house. So we leave the Cratchit family and we peek in on Fred's Christmas party. And Scrooge sees, you know, he doesn't really, as we said, he's got some animosity towards his nephew. He doesn't spend a lot of time with him. And he sees his nephew and his nephew's wife entertaining a bunch of people. And they're playing a game around the fire in this gorgeously decorated house everybody's dressed very nicely they're having a grand time and scrooge finds that throughout the game they're playing that scrooge is the butt of the joke he is who they're making fun of and that scene i always felt really bad for scrooge because to 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 see that and be on the outside looking in on a scene like that that's it's kind of humiliating and heart-wrenching at the same time Definitely. And at this point in the film, too, he's just, he be, he's becoming so human. I know that's funny to say, but, you know, especially with his expressions and everything, you see, like, his, his heart just breaking even more bit by bit, because this is the last remaining member of his family, his memory of fan, basically, who hasn't really done well by, and at least relationship status, not letting him get close. But now it's like, he's, like you said, he's the butt of the joke. Yeah, it, yeah, he and it's it's 
it's perfectly logical to say he's become human because especially in the beginning of the movie um he is this closed off larger than life persona and something that we didn't talk about in the beginning of the podcast but you and i did talk about in the film last night is especially in the first couple of scenes there's always three locks he yes. locks his accounting house three times. He locks his bedroom three times. And, you know, us just being us, we threw around some different ideas. You know, is it the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future? That subliminal number of three. Is it that he's closed off heart, mind, and soul? But it's, I think there's a metaphor there. You could, if you're looking hard enough. Between him being so closed off in real life and him being so closed off metaphorically. Oh, definitely. So we didn't mention that before, but yeah, it's it's those locks. They're coming unlocked. Yes. And yes, I'll be here all day. This is where it starts to get really creepy once the scene at Fred's is done. Um, he takes them back to they end up in a clock tower. Oh yeah. And the ghost of Christmas present, I wanted to say past, the ghost, the ghost of Christmas present is dying. Uh, as Kelly said, he only gets to live till uh, midnight on Christmas Eve. And he... As he's dying, uh, Scrooge makes a notice that he has like a little claw or a hand protruding from his foot and Christmas present pulls away his robe and there are these two very wanting looking children and he explains you know one of them is ignorance one of them is want and he Scrooge says are they yours and he says no they're man's beware of them and I again I just I thought that was such a great it, it's a disturbing scene but it's a great scene again it's one of those that i feel like you appreciate more as an adult but at the same time although i wouldn't mind it and i didn't mind it because i think i was like 12 when i saw this i can see why parents would be like nope too deep too deep too creepy and yes and this was one of the scenes with the two children where people were specifically referencing when they would talk about it in the store or, you know, when I would hear what people would have to say. This is one of the, they were like, what was that? That was too, too much. Like you said, too much for a kid's movie. Too creepy. But as an adult, I really liked it. And because yeah. it, it says a lot, it's very true. It's true for multiple reasons, which can, you know, make you think about a lot of good and bad things. Oh, Absolutely. I feel like now, if you don't come out of this movie like with some perspective or so, just get into like a nice, what's the word? Like a, just a nice thinking spot, like contemplative. You Thank you, you should welcome the force. <laughs> the force is strong. Um, you should come out of this movie contemplating something. Yes. If, it, if it doesn't touch you or it doesn't resonate with you, anything doesn't resonate with you. Well. I don't know. To each his own. True. Uh, so then he kind of disintegrates and dies. And from Scrooge's shadow comes the ghost of Christmas future. 
And that is something that I thought was fun and interesting is majority of the times, because I started paying attention in the movie, majority mm -hmm. of the times when the ghost of Christmas future comes, he always forms out of Ebenezer's shadow. I'd like to point out as a side note very quickly that um, in the original, I believe it's in the original story as well as like a lot of the plays and stuff, that whole chase scene, that never happened. The majority of the time that shadow does the ghost of Christmas yet to come. The only thing that moves is his hand when he's pointing. And to the film, I think it it did, especially a Disney film, like I'm, I'm pleased they added it. I think it added more to the story and it would help, like, especially the kids who did go to see it, it would help them understand like what was happening a little bit better. But um, yeah, that didn't happen in the original. So I'm glad I, I was gonna wait to bring this up, but oh, seeing how no 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 <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna wait to bring this up, but I'm I'm glad you went there first. Um I know this scene in the movie from if my memory serves correct, this particular chase scene was a big deal uh effects wise. This was like that big special effects push the movie had it was the big action scene it was the big chase scene and if we're being completely honest this is probably the one scene in the movie that doesn't work for me it didn't work for me when i saw it the first time it doesn't work for me now i get bored i check out i agree with what you're saying because it's a great way to put a lot of story in a short amount of time and you do get some great uh, Jim Carrey comedy bits, but overall, I think they could have done this differently. I, 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 I don't, I don't know what they would have done differently. I just, I feel like this chase, and again, you could argue the chase is metaphoric because it he turns into a Ghost of Christmas Future ends up driving a um a wagon, but isn't it supposed to be? undertaker's wagon i i got that impression yeah so if 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 it isn't that's the impression you're left with or that's what we got mm -hmm. so it is kind of ominous that it's chasing scrooge but yeah this scene didn't work for me i see what you're saying i think one of like i know you mentioned like you get to see like jim carrey bit shine in there and i think we even get like a grinch laugh i think mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons they might have added it is because by itself, like if you take that chase scene out of it, the ghost of Christmas yet to come in the plays I've seen reading the book, as well as with this movie always gives me the chills. And I feel like if they didn't have this in, it would just be even more so if that makes sense. Like it always like, I don't know what it is, but just the fact that he doesn't speak, he's a shadow. And he barely, well, at least, you know, he, he barely moves the times like Scrooge is right up close and interacting with him in the film. It's very unsettling, especially since he's kind of skeletal or he, I assume like he, looking at him, I feel like he's skeletal in nature, especially that graveyard scene. I feel like if they didn't have the chase in, it would just be way too serious. But at the same time, I see what you're saying. But again, it's like, I, I don't know how they would change it. Well, I think also something that you said, too, is that, you know, in all variations, the Ghost of Christmas Future is supposed to be scary and silent and extremely mm -hmm. somber. And maybe it was maybe it was a story idea or a stylistic idea done to make it 
even because this the film is already kind of dark and somewhat scary and we talked about that so maybe they were like well we don't want to go overboard on the scary you know this character is already scary enough maybe we'll you know kind of lighten it up a little bit and throw in some action um but yeah so uh earlier in the story you had brought up the scene so uh the, some of the scenes that Scrooge sees as he's running from the Ghost of Christmas Future is he sees people talking about him in the street. Scrooge finds out that he has died and nobody really seems to miss him. There are people who he knew that are contemplating on whether or not they're going to go to his funeral. Maybe if lunch is provided, that might be a good enough reason to show up. Uh, there were people who indebted to him through the business and uh you know the couple is depicted saying that it doesn't matter that he has died because there's no way another creditor could be so merciless and even if they are they'll by the time they they do get transferred to a new creditor they'll have more money so they're relieved because Ebenezer is dead uh I believe you talked about the servants and how she is housekeeper Mrs. Dilbert, is that her name? Uh, she took the um, she took the the sheet, the sh the curtains right off his bed, and she took his best bed shirt off of him. Yes, and I think she even said, "Oh yes, he was to be buried in it." And she was laughing. She's like, "Oh yeah," and then she took it right off his um, you know, his dead body. And it's like reminiscent of how Scrooge took the coins off of Marley, but still, it's just. It's kind of upsetting when you think about it. It is upsetting, and that's one of the things that Scrooge just takes takes away from this is that he was that rotten that nobody misses him. There's not one ounce of compassion that anybody has for the fact that this man is dead. And um that's kind of what Mrs. Dilbert gets at is she's like, Oh, you know, he he you know, he put me through a lot, but whatever. Uh, I got the stuff, and that's what's that. And then uh, one of the other things that we get to see is Scrooge ends up at the Cratchit house. Because that was one of the things he says. is He says, show me some ounce of compassion. But the compassion, I don't believe, was for him. No, and this is the scene. This is the scene that really almost broke me. Um, you see exactly what Christmas present warned of if things were not to change. You see the chair is empty and the cane is unaccompanied and you see the family all sitting at the table, very somber. They're speaking and, you know, the mother has tears running down her face and she's like, oh, your father so loved him. And then you see him come in and I, I believe he he's coming back from setting up the funeral, I think. He could be, yeah. Because when they, he later goes up the stairs and I'd like to point out, even though we know that it's kind of an illusion and we know that Bob can't see him. There's a moment on the stairs where it's almost as if they, they are eye to eye and you see Scrooge, this, the expression on Scrooge, Scrooge's face when they do, like he's so, like his heart broke for the Cratchits and it's like that humanity finally bubbles up to the surface completely. And like he doesn't, he's not so much caring about his own demise, he's caring about this little boy and the suffering that his family is going through. And I could be wrong, but what what got me confused about what he was coming back from is as he goes up the stairs, you kind of see a silhouette of a child lying on the bed. And I wasn't sure 
if that meant they hadn't buried him yet or if that was some symbolism thing or another play on shadows. I wasn't quite sure. I think I, I'm really glad you brought up this scene because that's actually one of the scenes that really hit me hard as well. Mm. Is like you said, you know that uh, Bob can't see Scrooge, but there is that moment where uh, Bob is going up the stairs. And I think what's happening here is I think that he has come back from arranging Scrooge's funeral. And if you look at what the family is doing at the table, they're sewing black cuffs. And what that was in Victorian England is when people were in mourning, and I don't, I don't know if you, if you couldn't afford to wear all black, but uh, I do know that if people were in mourning, they would wear black cuffs on their arms. And that black cuff was a, sing a symbol of mourning. I don't know what the difference is between wearing all black and the black cuffs. Um, maybe you didn't have to go out and buy all black clothes. I don't know. But I, I do know because if you pay attention, that's what the mom is sewing. And some of the girls are sewing them. Some characters are already wearing them. So I don't know if Tiny Tim has died yet or if he's dying. But one of the things that I got from when Bob is going up the stairs is... He, he doesn't want to go all the way to the top because he, he's it's almost like he's afraid of what he's going to find in that room. And, you know, it's, it's that moment, like you said, where Scrooge is just so broken. And I think he realizes the effect that he's had on this family. And now this family had to deal with Bob losing his job because Scrooge is dead. But now they're also about to lose their son if they already haven't. Yes. I, I, again, I say it a lot, but you put it perfectly. Thank you. So uh, once, that, once that scene is over and you get the heartbreaking scene of Cratchit, you know, kind of crying at Tim's bedside, uh, Ghost of Christmas Future kind of grabs Scrooge and they end up in a cemetery and Scrooge kind of ends up hanging over his grave where the coffin is open. You get a really nice visual of the coffin engulfed in flames. And Scrooge is like, no, I don't want to go. You know, I can change. And he ends up falling. But before you could say he like falls to his doom, he hits the bedroom floor and he wakes up and he realizes that it was a dream and it wasn't real. I also like to mention too, I like how a lot of the movie you have him falling as if like falling from his pride. And then at the end, like mm. when he wakes up like that, like he's at a new point where he's kind of has a chance to start anew. See more metaphors. Great. <laughs> I, I love, I love that analogy. Great, great picking up on that. Thank you. You're welcome. So he wakes up, he has a newfound look on life and he's he's done a 180. He is jolly. He's happy. I love when he I think um I think the turkey with the boy happens first, but we'll get to that in a second. But I love when he comes down and he looks at Mrs. Dilber and he's like, Merry Christmas. And like he's like all like giddy and happy, and she thinks he's like all gone mad and he's a loon. Yes. Um, I love when he pops the window open and you know he tells the kid. 
uh, go go down to the butchers and get the really big price turkey in the window uh, uh, and bring it here. If you do it in five minutes, uh, what does he say? I'll give you a half a crown. Yep. And I was just going to say, and I love how in just the way the animation like makes it look. And, like you see that childlike excitement. He's like, all right. And he, you just see him run off. And then as they come back after that interaction with Mrs. Dilber, he like um, says, oh, you can't carry this alone i'll get you a cab and it shows right off the bat his newfound just personality like he's he's paying for the the meat he's paying for the cab oh i actually found something that said um it mentions a christmas carol it says during a period known as the hungry 40s in england cratchit's wage of 15 shillings a week enabled him to cling precariously to the bottom rung of middle class oh so he's actually okay. low middle class yeah, he's probably part of the working class, upper working class, because he did have a job. Mm. So he's part of the working class. But yeah, so, so we've, we've talked about money quite a bit. And um, the scene with the turkey when he uh, tells the little boy he'll give him a half a crown if he does it in less than five minutes. Uh, we did some research and Kelly and I found that half a crown is the equivalent to 60 cents and when the story is written in 1843, the purchasing power of that 60 cents is the equivalent to $20.87 in today's purchasing power. And Bob Cratchit, it said, what's what's his wages, Kelly? Uh, 15 shillings a week. So he makes 15 shillings a week for 60 hours worth of work, which, oh. And... That is about $94 in 2015. And that's that's what the calculator is showing me. That's about $94. So basically, Bob makes a little under 100 bucks. That allows him to cling to working class, upper working class life. It's not enough, especially for that big family. But that uh, that's interesting that he tells the cat. Let me tell you, I would run pretty quickly to the butchers too if somebody was going to give me twenty bucks for grabbing the butcher and having him bring the turkey over. Definitely, and especially since that little guy, he was carrying a sled too. <laughs> you just see him right. zoom off. It's like zoom. He just goes. So uh, as you said, he uh, once the butcher arrives at Scrooge's, Scrooge orders a cab for him, and he tells him, you know, take this to Candom. Can't. Bleh. Camden Town, which is a part of London, and he uh, tells him, you know, bring it to the Cratchits. Bob goes, not Bob, Scrooge. Scrooge, uh, we see that, you know, he takes to the streets and a lot of the same people that he interacted with at the beginning of the movie, where he was really sour and glum-faced. Now he's wishing everybody a good morning, a Merry Christmas, a happy holiday. He's just, he's happy. And I love the part where he walks by the carolers and they, they kind of like stop singing and then he just picks it up in a great big chorus. That was beautiful. I, I love it. Cause like they immediately like kind of hunch over and they're like trying to melt since the brick behind them. And then they, that happens and they're taken aback, but they just go with it. And uh, the the gentleman who stopped into Scrooge's office the day before uh, asking about the charity donations, he bumps into Scrooge and Scrooge tells him, you know, come by, uh, I'm going to give you some more money. And I think he even gives him some money there. And then this gentleman watches Scrooge's interaction with the carol carolers 
So he sees that Scrooge is changed for the better. I, I always loved his expression. I believe he's played by Carrie Elwes. And it's just, it's funny. Like he's just, it's just one of those moments. It is beautiful. It is. We see that uh, he takes Fred up on his offer and he goes over to Fred's house for a Christmas dinner. And it's one of those moments where it's a deja vu moment for Scrooge because as Scrooge walks in the room, he was about to walk in on the moment where he became the butt of the joke and the game that they were playing. But as soon as as stunned as everyone is to see him, they are also equally as ecstatic and excited and they welcome him with open arms. And then the next thing we see is Scrooge in the middle of this big table and Fred is carving a turkey and he announces that next year they have to have this meal at his house. Yes, and I, I think that's it's very true to the novel at this point too because after this dinner, we immediately go to the next day. Whereas mm -hmm. I believe in a lot of the other adaptations, it usually over the Cratchit's house and seeing Tiny Tim, but instead you see him at his workplace. And Okay, so the next thing we see is the scene ends with at Fred's house for Christmas. And then the next thing we see is uh, Scrooge is at his counting house and he's waiting for Cratchit to come in. And at first we think he's kind of peeved with him because Cratchit's running late. It's the day after Christmas. But then once Cratchit comes in and we see him interacting with Scrooge, uh, we see that he's really kind of just playing with him. And I think this is such a great scene. Oh, no, I love it. And especially what comes directly afterward where he walks out and you just see like Scrooge having his own little party inside. And then you've brought it up a few times when we've talked before. He breaks the fourth wall and he kind of gives like um, what happens after the story ends and how Scrooge changes his life around and begins to honor Christmas. And both him and Tiny Tim did, did live. And as that happens, as he walks down the street, you see the stores behind him light up. And you see that image of Scrooge holding Tiny Tim on his shoulders, you know, that iconic image. And I just love that. And it's kind of also like compared to the beginning of the film where, you know, Scrooge was shadowed and like it was so dark and depressing and gloomy. It's like you have all this light and love and life at the end. And it was very nice and very transformative because, you know, at, at the heart of it, this is a redemption story with a little time travel mixed in. And they did it very well. Yeah, I agree. And that's something you're right. That's something we haven't really brought up until now is that it is a redemption story. And I think that's one of my favorite things about this story is that, you know, by the end, he's someone who has, you know, found uh, happiness and light and love and he's found it through the spirit of Christmas. So I think that's really beautiful. And I, I you're right. I, that that scene of him with Tiny Tim on his shoulders. That's been used a couple of times in a couple of different variations. So it's an iconic scene. It's a great scene. And you're right. The play on light is really beautiful when they're when uh, Cratchit breaks the fourth wall and he starts talking to the audience and they kind of transition to the what is the end of the movie and the final scene. It almost looks like a moving Christmas card. It's that yes. beautiful or almost like a, a Thomas Kincaid painting where it's it's got that that's classic Christmas feeling. I agree. So that's, yeah, that's how the movie ends with Tiny Tim on Scrooge's shoulders and it's light 
and bright and that's a Christmas Carol. That's Disney's 2009 version of A Christmas Carol. We made it through another one. And now we're at the point where we do closing thoughts. And this time, since just to switch it up a bit, I will ask you first, who was your favorite character here, Maria? So you're turning the tables. I'm up. turning the tables. <laughs> Fair enough. I like it. My favorite character. So this movie is not a movie where I am. I love the story of Scrooge. And I love the journey he goes through, but I don't know if I have like a favorite, favorite character. I always get really attached to Fred because I love Fred's optimism and I love his sort of goodwill natured, even though Scrooge is not the best person to him. I like that he still opens the door metaphorically to Scrooge. He's like, well, you know, if you want to come, the door is always open. He has that kind of mentality, even though this is a man who has repeatedly turned him down and kind of been, you know, aggressive towards him. He still always kind of holds that metaphoric door open and he's very good natured towards him. So I really like that. So I am going to pick Fred. The spinoff version is of Fred's life in, uh, in a different uh, Christmas Carol universe is what I'm waiting for. Uh, if I had to pick a favorite ghost, mm. I would pick the ghost of Christmas past. The historian in me always really likes the past events that we get to see with Scrooge. And I, I think I mentioned it earlier. One of the scenes I like in almost any Christmas Carol version is the Fezziwig scene. Mm. So I am going to say Fred is my favorite character. And if I had to pick a favorite ghost, it's the ghost of Christmas past. All good choices. I think um, I agree with you where it's not really a film where you like you can pick a like have an absolute favorite character and everything like that. Like I, I don't really go into it that way with this film. But if I had to choose, I'm very fond of Bob Cratchit as well as the ghost of Christmas past. And I found like in the past, um, I kind of favored more of the present, but just watching it again and having more time to think on it. I favored the past. So, OK, I like it. So we're, as usual, we're of the same mindset. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So uh, do you, I'll then turn the tables on you now. Do you <laughs> have a favorite scene? Hmm, this is another one. Um, hmm. I feel like it's not really a, well, you know what? I, I very much like the ending and how they light it up. And also, it's not really a favorite scene, but the way they do the whole ghost of Christmas yet to come stays with you and is very chilling and very disturbing, but it's also very thought-provoking. And I feel like that scene, as well as the last scene, stayed with me after watching and having more time to reflect on it. So I'd say that one. What about you? I agree with you. This I feel like these questions work better with more traditional films, mm. and it's kind of hard to pick these for this one. Um, but like I said in my last statement, um, the Fezziwig scene is always something that I get excited to see in the different adaptations. So I'm going to go with Fezziwigs. Good choice. Is there anything in the film that didn't work for you? A scene? I already kind of tipped my hand earlier mm. when I talked about the chase scene by the Ghost of Christmas Future. So I'm sticking with that. So everybody knows what doesn't work for me. What about you? Is there anything in this movie that doesn't work for you? It's not that it doesn't work for me, but also I kind of agree the chase scene. Just because, like, I believe 
that is one of the few scenes that goes off the novel. And I'm not sure if they do it in the play. Um, but I know, cause at least the one I saw it, they didn't do it, but it was a long time ago. But, um, yeah, I just, I feel like we need it to keep that light, like a sneak in a bit of lightheartedness and you see some of Jim Carrey's antics in there, but it just, I don't know. I don't know how they would do it differently as is it. It's, it's still good. It still works, but it just doesn't work for me personally. Once again, we are, are of the same mind. <laughs> So yeah, I agree. It didn't it didn't work for me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you were nicer about it than I was, but we we know how I feel. <laughs> so uh, and in this section also, we usually try to talk about like merchandise tie-ins in the parks yes. and stuff. I can't remember any. I looked. I didn't see. I know. We I think we I think it we might have talked about it. Uh, I don't remember if we talked about it in the podcast or if we talked about it. You and I. There was the train tour for publicity but other than that i i don't even remember a lot of merchandise coming through the store everything was princess and the frog and again rightly so the better (laughs) option um but i i don't remember a lot i remember a lot of marketing and i remember seeing a lot of commercials Mm. but as far as park tie-ins and merchandise it was all princess and the frog that year I can't, I can't remember much of it having stuff like that either. Again, I think it was, I think the most popular thing they did, the most well-known thing they did for it was the train stuff. Yeah, there was that train publicity tour that went all over the UK. Mm. All right, so and now we have some fun history and trivia of the film that more so, Kelly more so than I has dug up. She was more fruitful in her search. So oh. Kelly, why don't you why don't you kick us off with some of the history and trivia? Sure. So this um, film has quite a lot written about it, found on IMDb and other articles, um, YouTube interviews, and everything. But some of the most interesting I found was, for example, it is one of the first stories about time travel to be written. And I don't know, I thought that was very interesting, especially considering who the director is and you know what he made. Um, it also is the first Disney movie to be released on IMAX 3D. I it remember. Is, oh, I'm sorry. Go well, ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I remember that. I remember the IMAX 3D because that was the thing. It wasn't mm. just IMAX. It was IMAX 3D. And I remember being that part being a really big plug. And I think that's how you saw it, right? Yes. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm pretty sure the other person who I was talking to about the beginning or I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, I'm pretty sure that they saw it also in IMAX 3D. So I remember that being the big plug. And it's it's funny because Zemeckis directed this. And I think Zemeckis just has a thing with time travel. Maybe he he's does. from the future. I think he, he even commented somewhere that this is one of his favorite time travel um, movies, plots type wow. of thing. And that's saying a lot from that is saying this gentleman. A lot. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it more than once on here because I keep teasing about a Back to the Future episode, but Back to the Future is one of my favorite movies. Not even one of my favorite time travel movies, just one of my favorite movies in general. So that's, wow, okay, cool. It's interesting. 
Um, this one I found, I, I never knew this. This was Jim Carrey's only film with Disney. But not only that, what blew me away was he had the option to voice Buzz Lightyear. He turned it down. And again, I love Tim Allen's portrayal. I can't imagine a different Buzz. It's very hard to, but can you imagine? Can you I, imagine? I, I feel like I can imagine that because Carrie has that comedic clout where yes. he would be able to carry the role. But I think Tim Allen, I don't know if it's because he is Buzz Lightyear and that's how we've seen it for four movies and however many spinoff shorts and whatnot. That's what we've come to know. But I'm sorry. I'm just, yeah, Tim Allen is Buzz Lightyear. Although now, ironically enough, and um, Disney released this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Chris Evans is going to be the new voice of Buzz Lightyear because they're they're kind of getting meta with it. What uh, Pixar announced is Buzz Lightyear is a toy that was based off of a movie and now uh, a movie in that Pixar universe. He's like an action figure. But now uh, they're making a movie that the they're making the movie that the action figure is based off of. So Chris Evans is going to play the character of Buzz Lightyear either either in the movie or in real life of that universe. They didn't release too much, but I did see that announcement and Chris Evans confirmed it on his Insta. So hmm. if it's on the gram, you know it's going to be true. No, but <laughs> Pixar verified it. But I, I think that's pretty cool. Mm. It's not something I would have thought to do, but... I like it, and I like Chris Evans. I, I adore him. So I will probably watch that just for him. That will uh, definitely be interesting to see. It is. It's it, Like I said, they're getting interesting with it. But just a little side note while we were talking about Buzz Lightyear. Mm. Um, and then the, the last little bit of trivia is that Jim Carrey is said to have taken inspiration from Alistair Sims' portrayal of Ebenezer in the 1951 version of The Christmas Carol. And I don't know, I've heard a lot of good things about that film. I unfortunately haven't watched that version, but I figure maybe somewhere down the road off podcast, we could give that a go or something and just to see how much he took. Absolutely. I would be down for that. And yeah, mm. I haven't, I have not seen that one either, but I have heard a lot of good things about it. When I was actually trying to do some research, uh, one of the things that kept popping up in my research was like different blogs and websites and different people's opinions mm. about the best, about like all the majority of the versions of Christmas Carol ranked. And that one, the 1951, is always somewhere in somebody's, like, top three, if not number one. So it, it seems to be, like, a pretty unanimous consensus that the 1951 version is one of the best out there. I saw that a lot of places, too. For for some lists, this one that we watched didn't make it at all. <laughs> if, it, if it did make it and it was, like, out of somebody's, like, top ten, this was usually, like, eight or nine. Someone, I don't remember what website put this at, like, number five. And literally the only reason they said it made number five was because it was one of the more, like, truthful adaptations to the book, which we've, we've talked about. Uh, so, I guess, it, I, I mean, at the end of the day, it does have that going for it. If you want... It's it's beautifully animated, mm. and if you want something that's true to the book, I guess this is it. 
if you can get through all the other stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you so much for turning, <laughs> tuning in to this month's episode. We always appreciate everyone who takes the time to download and listen to the show. Uh, we ask that you please download, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. Uh, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and please download and leave us a review. You can catch up with It's a Fans World at It's a Fans World Podcast at gmail.com. Or if you're on Twitter, you can reach us at It's a Fans World P1. And if you're still on Facebook, we're on there too. It's not completely dead yet for us, but we do have a Facebook page. <laughs> uh, you can find us at facebook.com slash It's a Fans World. Keep up with us, follow us uh, on those social media platforms. We usually post um, episode releases. We usually post when we're working on episodes. So it's a great way. And if you want to get get at us and tweet us or leave us a comment, or you can reach out to us through email, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what's working, what's not working. We're open to comments and criticism. Yes. Uh, if you like the sound of my voice, which I want to know who you are if you do. <laughs> if you like the sound of my voice, I am also on another podcast that is called Operation History. It is on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. It's on a lot of the same platforms that It's a Fan's World is on. But it is a completely different podcast. It's a much more serious and academic podcast. We're very proud of the research and the material that we put out there because we try to keep it as realistic, professional, and accurate as possible. Uh, I am joined on that episode by my fellow co-hosts, Lauren, David, and Derek, and it is the same David and Derek who appear on here from time to time. I would just like to point out very quickly, as it was just recently the last episode of season two of The Mandalorian, if you go back to a few a few episodes previous, you will notice we had an episode with predictions about Mandalorian season one, most of which came true. So if you haven't seen that, maybe go back because you know what? It feels so good to be right. Sorry, just had to add that little tidbit in there. And moving forward in the future, we might have a season two episode a few months down the line. So keep your ear. You're out for that one. (laughs) Might is going to change to will, uh, because I have a lot more thoughts on Mandalorian season two. Yes. Um, And yeah, I can't believe like looking back how much we were right about. And it feels weird to be right because we're never, I'm never usually right about that much. Um, But I, I, I have a lot. We're not going to talk about it here because we're not going to go on a tangent, but Mm. um, a lot of good things. If, if David and Derek are willing to come back, we will absolutely welcome them on that Mandalorian episode, which will come sometime in. Because I know the new season is confirmed for the mm. end of 2021. So that episode, we will fit into a Star Wars rotation content uh, before the season drops. Yeah. So just another shout out we would also like to give is if you like watching live stream gaming and you're on the Titch, tw- uh, excuse me, and you are on the Twitch platform, Check out uh, my cousin. His handle is Russian Gamer 3260 
it's something he likes to do in his his spare time, and he has a lot of fun with it. He was kind enough and awesome enough to shout out the podcast on his Twitch, so we would like to do the same for him. It's a lot of fun. I love watching him when I can, and like I said, he just has fun with it. Uh, check him out, Russian Gamer thirty two sixty. And uh, for our January episode, so Kelly and I are never not thinking about what we're going to do next. And uh, it's actually kind of, you know, fortuitous that we have picked another Zemeckis movie. And the next content piece in our rotation is a live action movie. But technically kind of like Enchanted, because last time we picked Enchanted, this is another animation uh, live action hybrid. But this one isn't as fluffy. We are doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit. A cult classic. It is a cult classic. And I know I always say I'm excited, but Roger Rabbit is one of those <sighs> movies where, like you said, it's a cult classic and very, if you know, you know. There are people who are into it and it's a lot of fun. And I feel like it's one of those things where it's not super mainstream, but it definitely has a cult following because when you say it to someone, they'll either say oh yeah i've seen it or no i haven't nobody's ever in between there is no middle ground yeah there is no middle ground it's just yes i have or no i haven't so that's what we're going to be doing for january tune into our january episode for our live action content on who framed roger rabbit but before we say goodbye kelly and i know that this is a special time of year for everyone so different cultures and different religions. There's lots to celebrate and be thankful for. So Kelly and I here at It's a Fans World want to wish you a safe and happy holiday, no matter who you're celebrating with or how you're celebrating, or if you've already even celebrated. We hope that you and yours have a wonderful and safe holiday in time. And we would also like to wish you a very safe, healthy, and very happy new year. Yes, have a good one, guys. Yes, so that about wraps it up for today on It's a Fan's World. We'll see you guys in 2021. We'll see you real soon. Fans World has no association with any of the companies, organizations, or studios mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any companies or institutions that they currently work at or attend or have previously worked for or previously attended in the past. We thank you for listening and tune in next time to join us.